You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. It's a joy to be with you here. We have been praying for your church since the first discussions about planting in Niagara as people were driving to Hope Church in Oakville. And we have been, uh, from a distance, very involved in praying, supporting your first pastor, Daryl Molino, his wife, Ruth. We're good friends of ours in London. And actually, I'd hired Daryl part-time on a contract to teach our youth for a year and walk through sort of this sense of calling to plant and all of that and so excited to see what God has done in planting. It's been a joy for us to get to know your pastor Ross and, and his wife and to build a relationship with them as we're growing together. So thankful for him, his maturity, his love for the Lord, his gifting and they're really trusting all of you. And it's exciting to think this is last Sunday here in a new location. We were 15 and a half years as a church in a box and rentals in London. And uh, so I, we have some sense of what you're going through and it's exciting and we'll be praying for you this fall in the new location, trusting the Lord that he knows what is going on and uh, for the, the, the fall ministry for all of you. And so my wife uh, sends her apology. She was gonna come with me. I drove here this morning. About early Friday morning, her sister's husband, who's my brother-in-law, had a heart attack and died suddenly, very unexpectedly. So two in the morning, we had to call or knock on doors for his three sons and their wives and tell them. So the last two days have been just a whirlwind, uh, really just a blur, getting ready for the funeral on Thursday. And most of them are involved in our church. Thankfully, my brother-in-law loved the Lord, um, as does his family. So uh, we're hurting. We mourn, but not as those who have no hope. So I trust the Lord in that. It's not been a normal weekend for me to prepare to preach, but I was reminding myself this morning as I was reading God's word, I was up early and couldn't sleep, but uh, God's sovereign. And I was thinking when Ross asked me to preach early summer uh, this weekend, uh, he didn't know and I didn't know, but the Lord knew. And so I always feel utterly dependent when I open God's word, more so perhaps this morning, but that's a good thing. We need to hear from the Lord and uh, just appreciate your prayers for us as well. And so open your Bibles to Matthew 17. We're going to spend most of our time in Matthew 17, but I want to start in 2 Peter 1 so you can turn there. And at the end of the sermon, we'll come back to 2 Peter 1, so perhaps leave a bookmark there, but... So we'll spend most of our time in Matthew 17, but I just want a, a brief introduction from 2 Peter 1 to set our hearts and minds on the truth that Matthew 17 really falls into. So 2 Peter 1, verse 19, Peter writes, we have the prophetic word, here's a key phrase, more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter says, we have the prophetic word. That means the Old Testament as they had it and the New Testament is being written. He's referring to scripture. He says, we have the prophetic word. We have scripture. Now listen, here's a key phrase. More fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention. 
Now, why is that important? Because, and we'll look at this at the end of the sermon, just prior to that verse, he talks about his personal experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17. When Peter had a personal, along with James and John, experience of the glory of God and the power of God, he had what so many today are longing for and praying for. God, if you'd part the skies, if I heard a voice from heaven, if I had some personal revelation, some special, and, and so many people, and listen, listen, if that's you, please, please, please hear the word of Peter. We have a more sure and certain word in God's scripture. And so Peter, I want to take you to Matthew 17 to show you Peter's experience, and we're going to walk through the transfiguration, then we'll come back and read a little bit more of what Peter says there. I think it's important in this day and age we live to understand that God's word is all we need for life and godliness and is more than enough for everything we face. And so let's look together. Let me read, first of all, the passage. We won't get to the ending verses very much, but let's look together in God's word. Matthew 17, verse one. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brothers. So James and John's our brothers. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He, Peter, was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and the voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came up and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only, and they were coming down the mountain. Jesus commanded them, tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come. And he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also will the Son of Man, so also will the Son of Man certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Here we have the transfiguration. I want to just walk through this. We'll spend more of the time in the beginning here. Verses 1 and 2, uh, we see that they and we have a glorious Savior. We have a glorious Savior. They, they, they are on the mount, the three men, the inner three. In six months, these would be the same three men Jesus takes to the garden, into that private place, and says, pray for me. Here he takes them up on the mount. We think it's Mount Meron, M-E-R-O-N, there's several options. This is likely the most probable one. Luke and Luke chapter 9 and Mark and Mark chapter 9 have the parallel accounts of the transfiguration. Mark's similar to Matthew. Luke gives us a number of details, as Luke often does, that aren't in the other two. And Luke tells us in 9.32 that the apostles, the three of them, were heavy with sleep. Luke also tells us they stayed overnight on the mount. So we don't know how long they were there before they started praying, but Jesus said, let's pray. This, pray. this wasn't sort of a, 
strange thing for them because Jesus often went off by himself to pray, but sometimes with his disciples to teach them to pray. So he takes these three up. They're praying. We don't know how long, but the disciples are falling asleep. Now, this kind of should encourage you because it does me. I don't know about you. If I try to pray at night, I can just go off in a matter of seconds. And I need to pray in the morning uh, because of that. But uh, we know the disciples do that in six months in the garden as well, these same three. But as they're praying, and then Luke says they're kind of falling asleep, their eyes are shut. uh, And then suddenly, it says in verse 2, he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. The word transfigured is the word we get metamorphosis from. Metamorphosis, the Greek word, the English word, means to be transformed. A physical change of substance. We use it of a a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. If you look at the two, you go, wow, that's ugly and that's beautiful. And a a transformation, he was transformed. It's, it's It's a translated transfigured only with Jesus. Any other time it's used, it's translated as transformed. Luke tells us they're fighting sleep, they're heavy with sleep, and all of a sudden they come fully awake and see the transformed Jesus. Their eyes actually, with their physical eyes, they actually see the glory of God. These three later tell about this, and here Matthew describes it, Mark describes it, Luke describes it. None of them were there. They've heard from the three who were there. Matthew describes it, that the glory coming from Jesus made his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white like light. Luke says the appearance of his face was altered. In other words, there's just this bright radiance coming from him. The clothing, his clothing became, Luke says, dazzling white. I like Mark. He doesn't talk about his faith, but listen to what Mark says. He was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, that's kind of funny to me. That makes me think Mark was in charge of, the, of doing the laundry. Because Mark has tried to bleach. If you ever have something that's dirty and you try to bleach it and get it white, and you're like, I can't get it as white as I'd like to. And Mark here is saying, there's no bleach on earth. He said, I've tried every product on the shelf in the grocery store, and none of them could get it that white. He's overwhelmed by it. Jesus was transformed. Why? Because the glory of God was radiating from him, and he looks like the sun. Now, it's important to understand how this happens, why this happens. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, we believe in one God, eternally existing in three persons, correct? One God, one God, only one God, but he eternally exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. You say, well, that's impossible. It is, but that's God. We can't understand it. We can try and illustrate it. All the illustrations fall short. It's miraculous. There's one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The second person of the Trinity has always existed forever and ever because he's God. He's fully God, 100% divine. That's the one who's here before him, before them. But Jesus, always being God, 100% divine, at the incarnation, the conception, and then his birth, he took on humanity. Now, he was fully man. He's 100% divine and 100% human. You go, that can't be. That's impossible. It has to be 50-50. No, he's God. He's 100% divine and 100% human. He was fully human in every way. And yet he was fully divine. 
how those two come together, I don't care. I don't have to try to figure that out. My puny mind can't understand it. It's a miracle. You can't understand miracles. Do you, under, do you get that? You, you, miracles, by definition, contradict every law we know. You can't prove a miracle. You can't really understand it. It just is. And so Jesus is 100% divine, 100% human. And, and just as my best description of it, I don't even know if this, Ross can connect, correct this next weekend if I get it wrong. I just say sort of his humanity covered over his divinity. Now, I don't know if that's the best way to say it. I don't know how else to say it. Because when you looked at Jesus, Isaiah 53 said there was nothing about his appearance that you go, oh, there's the Messiah. I see his divinity. No, he looked like any other man. There was nothing about him. He just looked like another human. But he's 100% God, 100% divine. He didn't lose his divinity when he became man. Theologians give it the term the hypostatic union. Hypo, H-Y-P-O, static, hypostatic union. What this is saying is there's one person, not two persons, one person, the second person of the Trinity, always divine, then suddenly becomes the God-man. So the one person has, best way to put it maybe, is two natures. He has a divine nature and a human nature. He's fully God. Listen, God can never be anything but God, right? If God becomes anything other than God, he's not God. So at the incarnation, he loses none of his godliness, none of his godhead. He's always completely God. But in taking on humanity, somehow when they looked at him, you saw the human, you didn't see the divine. But it was there. And until this time here, Hebrews 1.3 tells us Jesus is the exact nature of God. John 1 tells us that God, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He's God, he's God, he's God. And then he takes on humanity. And when you looked at him in his 33 years, you didn't see his humanity, his independent use of his attributes. However, you kind of want to describe all of that until this very incident, even after his resurrection, I don't think they saw his glory. He still looked human. But here, something happens. I don't know how to say it. The best way, and this again, don't hold me to this, because I don't know if it's theologically accurate, but in my mind, I just think of kind of pulling the curtain aside of his humanity and some of his divinity shown forth. Now, I don't know if that's accurate. It's not like a Superman thing, and he's like, it's, I, I just don't know how you put the two together, but all of a sudden here, his glory is emanating from him. They see him as he was before the incarnation in some way. Paul talks about this idea of Jesus being the God-man in Philippians 2, 5 to 8, very well-known passage, and Paul's encouraging the church, those of us in the church, to be humble, and the, our example is Jesus Christ. Paul says in Philippians 2, 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ, which is a mind of humility, and he says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, that means he was God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, a ton has been written on the little phrase, emptied himself, the kenosis. And it doesn't mean, as some heretics or heretical teaching will say, that he stopped being divine, emptied himself of his divinity. No, 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 no. It just means a covering over in some way that we really won't understand. Perhaps when we get to heaven, we'll understand it more. 
There was perhaps a veil over his divinity, however you want to think of it. But here on the mount, and it's hard for the men to describe it because it's a miracle, but they say it was like his face is like the sun and his clothes are brighter than anything we've ever seen as his glory. And this is, as Matthew writes this, especially to the Jews who he's writing to, they should think of the Old Testament Shekinah glory. Have you heard that phrase, a Shekinah glory? When the glory of the Lord would appear... Here, because Jesus is fully God, the Shekinah glory is emanating. Remember when Moses would go up on the mountain and meet with God and he came down, what happened with his face? It would shine, wouldn't it? But see, Moses wasn't transformed in the sense or, or as Jesus was because Moses, he simply reflected the glory of God. It was not his own glory. He just reflected it and it diminished over time. Jesus here is the source of glory because he's God himself. And so he radiates the glory. Glory is, is not God himself. It's what radiates or emanates from him. It's like the light from the sun. It's not the sun, but it's what emanates from him, from the sun. The glory of God is the radiance of his beauty, his majesty, his awesomeness. And here in a glimpse, these men see this bright, bright glory being revealed. It reminded me, and I've been reading, and I'm on the Robert Murray McShane Bible reading plan. If any of you do that, you read four different passages from four different books each day, and I've done that for a couple of years. Really blessed my heart, and I'm in Ezekiel, and so this morning I was reading further on in Ezekiel, but just a week ago, Ezekiel 1, and the vision Ezekiel has of God, you remember that? He's struggling to try to describe what God showed him, a vision of the throne room of God. And Ezekiel writes, uh, above the expanse over their heads, after he tries to describe these strange angelic creatures, and he, he's struggling with language, and he says, above their heads, there's a likeness of a throne. Listen to his language, appearance, likeness, as it were. He can't find words to describe, and he's struggling along, but there's a likeness of a throne, not a throne, but a likeness. It's an appearance of sapphire, but not sapphire. And seated above the likeness of the throne was the likeness of a human in appearance, not human, but sort of like a human. And from upward, the waist up, his appearance I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. Downward from what he had, the appearance of his waist, as it was the appearance of fire. There was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that's in the cloud in the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. I want to say, Ezekiel, I wish you had a better grasp of the language. <laughs> I'd like to know better all this likeness and appearance, but he, he can't. It's impossible. How can you describe something that is completely out of this world, like no one has ever seen, no language has ever described before? And here these men are experiencing on the mount this transformed, this transfigured Jesus. What's encouraging about that word translated transfigured of Jesus? As I said, metamorphosis is our English word. It's also used of us, but it's not transfigured, it's transformed. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul's describing the sanctifying work of the Spirit in our lives, the Spirit and the Word. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all, this is all of us Christians, we all, we all, listen, with unveiled face, not like Moses having to veil our face, we all with unveiled face are, listen, beholding the glory of the Lord. And you say, well, I've never beheld the glory of the Lord. Yes, you have. 
You see the glory of the Lord in this book, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the word of Christ. You know the living word by the written word. And here Paul's saying, we all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord. And listen, here's our word. We're being transformed. We are being transformed into the same image. What image? The image of Jesus. We are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is a spirit. It's a wonderful reality. You see, when you're saved, the moment you repent of your sin and confess your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're, you're transformed, you're created new, you're born from above, you're forgiven, you're washed, you're cleansed, you're adopted, you're justified, your sins are all paid for, past, present, and future, and you're declared holy and righteous. But then you begin living the Christian life. That's justification now in your walk and talk, in your actions and reactions, in your words and thoughts. You're to become increasingly who you're declared to be. From one degree of glory to another, we're being transformed by the Spirit of God. Such that each month and each year, you should look more like Jesus to reflect more of his character, his glory. Wonderful. It's wonderful what he does in us. But here, Jesus, the, the, the glory of Jesus, that they see him and, and we see him in the word and we're being transformed to be more like him. It's a wonderful reality that Peter experienced in ways we don't. But Peter, remember, remember, Peter said, you have a more sure and certain word than even that experience I had. Secondly, in verse three to five, not only do we have a glorious Savior, as Peter saw firsthand, but we have a powerful Savior. And we don't have to see that special skies part word from the Lord or anything to know that because we have the word of God. But here we see the power of our Savior. How do, why do we say that? Because notice in verses three to five, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, now listen. That screams forth of power. And you know why? Those men are dead <laughs> a long time ago. Can we all agree the most powerful thing anybody can do is bring the dead to life? That's why the last enemy is conquered because when we sin, we die, but God conquered death through the cross. It's the ultimate enemy. So the one who can bring life has ultimate power, correct? So when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, here they're seeing it because they're seeing two men who are long dead and yet they have bodies and they're walking and talking. It's a reminder, not only the glory of our Savior, but the power of our Savior. Two Old Testament saints. Now, I don't know how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. I doubt they had name tags on. They didn't have pictures in their worship center. Moses, Elijah, Abraham. They didn't have videos or documentary. You couldn't Google them. I don't know how, but somehow they knew. And then I wonder why Moses and Elijah. I would have thought Abraham, Father Abraham, David, you know, the, the, the line of, of Jesus and all. Uh, why, why? The best guess, this is just my guess. Some commentators believe this. I've read it. I think it probably makes sense. I don't know if there's, we're just not told, but I, I kind of think Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, right? The Pentateuch, the law. Moses was known for the law of God. Elijah was one of the premier prophets of God. And so I kind of just look at this, and again, thinking of 2 Peter and his pointing to the word of God, you have the law and the prophets. 
And whenever you read in Scripture about the law and the prophets, it's a synonym for the Old Testament Scriptures. And so they're represented perhaps before them, these three men, and maybe for what's future to come as they write Scripture, they're seeing the law and the prophets, the Old Testament Scriptures in a sense, some of the authors of that. I don't know, that's just my sense on it. But Luke, who talks about this, he says that in Luke 9.31, these two men appeared in glory. Now, they could have had their own glory because they came from heaven, or it could be they were just in the glory, the radiating glory of Jesus, which is kind of what I think, because they're talking to him. And they spoke, Luke says this, Luke 9.31, they spoke to Jesus of his departing. The word departing is properly translated exodus. They're speaking to Jesus about his exodus. In about six months' time, he's going to go to the cross and die. And they're speaking to him about that. Now, we don't know if Jesus is informing them of that's coming, because not everybody in heaven knows everything, right? And so maybe Jesus is letting these two men know of his plan, and he came to die. Maybe they already knew that, and they're talking about it. We don't know. But they're talking about his departure and what he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem, Luke tells us. So they appear and they see the glory. These men see the glory of Jesus, but they see the power of Jesus as well, speaking to the dead who yet now live and have bodies. And it's interesting, they're speaking about the exodus, the departure, the death. Because if you read Matthew, just prior to this, Jesus has told his disciples the first of three times, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be tried, I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to be raised from the dead three days later. He tells them that three times. He's just told them the first time, but they didn't get it. And then here, suddenly, we have these two men from the past talking about his departure, about his exodus, about his death, about the cross. But Peter, and I got to love Peter, he's my favorite character in the Bible, he completely misses what's going on here. Peter, you know, put foot in mouth and then think. Right? Uh, I find myself a lot that way. I tend to just kind of do things and I, then I get in trouble, I did it wrong or whatever. I back up and I, I don't know, some of you, I confess this, I, I often pray, I should have prayed then and I sometimes, oh yeah, I better pray and I better, you know, and so Peter's just always that guy, great heart, but he's uh, here, he's just kind of doing one of those things again. And so Peter says, Lord, it's good that we're here. I think that's pretty obvious, Peter, right? Like Jesus brought you up here to show you this. I think that's a fair statement we can all agree with. This is a pretty special thing. But then Peter says, it's good that we're here. And so essentially he says, let's stay a while. Let's camp. Now Luke said they stayed overnight, but Peter says, why don't I build some tents? Make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Maybe he's saying like John and James and I will just sleep outside, but now, just catch the context. Jesus just told them he's going to go to Jerusalem and die. Peter has said, that should never happen. And then we come here, and the two men from the past are talking about his death. And then Peter's saying, let's just camp here. Forget the other apostles. Forget the plan. I just want to stay here on this mountaintop experience. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You don't understand Jesus has just rebuked Peter after he told them, Jesus told him the first time, I'm going to go and be crucified. And Peter, remember, Peter said, that'll never happen. And Jesus said, get behind me, what? Satan. He rebuked him strongly. Because he didn't understand he came to die. Here are some commentators, and I agree with this, some commentators believe this is God rebuking Peter, a softer rebuke. 
but because the text tells us, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed and a voice from heaven, from the clouds. God doesn't even allow Peter to continue on with his, his own plan, his own let's just stay up here on the mountain thing. And a bright cloud comes. And as soon as you read that, just like the glory of the Lord shining forth, as soon as you read a bright cloud comes over, you should think of the Old Testament again. Remember, Moses went on the mountain and a cloud came down and descended on the mountain. And God led Israel a fire by night and a cloud by day. And so as soon as you read this, this cloud is the evidence of the presence of God. And so they recognize it's a bright cloud. Most clouds are dark. It's a bright cloud. And then a voice from heaven. Uh, a voice from the cloud means a voice from heaven. And God speaks. And I love it. Now, these words should remind you of the baptism of Jesus because they're almost exactly the same. When Jesus came up out of the water, remember? They, some of them heard a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. Such a tender, tender word from the Father. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The father loves the son. Jesus said that, didn't he? I think John 17. The son loves the father. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then this, listen to him. Now, I think that last part should be unnecessary. You've just seen the Shekinah glory of Jesus. You've seen his divinity, that he's the God-man. And you've just seen his power of bringing the dead to life, I think it's pretty obvious. Then you hear a voice from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Wouldn't it be blatantly obvious to everybody, we better listen to Jesus? Why does God add that? I think because he knew these men were dull and still rather self-centered. Twice more they'd be told about Jesus' death coming and they would fight amongst themselves of who's the greatest. They'd lock themselves away when he's crucified, not believing he's going to be raised from the dead. And I think these words were spoken for you and me. Because we struggle with being a church and a people in this day and age in Canada who like to pick and choose, not only from churches, but from the word of God. When something confronts us, when something calls out our character, when something corrects us, far too many people edit the word of God or ignore it. And God says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. I wonder, are you listening to the Lord today? You say, well, if he parted the skies and spoke, I, no, no, he's spoken to you. Are you listening to the word of God? Are you listening? He's mine. I tell our church this all the time and I say it to you in love. It doesn't matter what you want and it doesn't matter what I want. I tell our people, it doesn't matter what you want for this church and it doesn't matter what our leaders want. The only question is what does the Lord of the church want for his church? What does the chief shepherd want? What does the master want? What does the one who died to redeem us from our sin want? wonder, are we listening to him? Are we listening to him? That means, are we obeying him? I know it's unpopular today in rejection of authority. We're called to submit to the Savior. And let me tell you, the way you submit to the Savior is to submit to his word. 
important to understand that. Here is the power of God, the power of God being displayed. Can I just remind you, and I've been reminded of this just the last few days, you don't know if you'll have another minute to live. A fireman told me they zapped my brother, brother-in-law four times, probably was gone almost instantly. We just don't know. Can I tell you, your salvation, your days on earth, your possessions, your future, your opportunities, your abilities, your skills, your business, your job, your income, your net worth, your bank account, your kids, your spouse, your potential, your smarts, your education, your degree, your employees, your clients, your house, your car, your clothes, your technology. I can go on and list everything. All of that is only from God and because of God and for God. And everything must be submitted to God. Meaning submitted to the word of God. It all belongs to him. He must be central, preeminent in everything. And you say, well, he is. Then I ask you, do you read this book? Do you ponder in this book? Do you submit yourself to this book? So many are saying, I will if God will speak to me from the sky. We'll come back to Peter again. As we just kind of browse through the rest of this here, the response, and this is always the response, when you see the glory of God and the power of God, it always, always, always causes us to see we're not God. And in verse 6, you see their response, because when they hear the voice, the disciples, when they heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Isn't it true in Scripture, whenever an angel shows up, what happens? Whoever's there hits the dirt, Right? Because, and that's not even God. Those are just the messengers sent from the throne room of God. And they just go low and hear the disciples fall on their faces and they're literally terrified. Now we should have a righteous fear of God. But they sense their unworthiness. It should have come with the glory of God. It should have come with the power of God. But they hear the voice of God and all of that together. Seeing two dead men yet living and they just go down in terror. And yet, I love Jesus' response. When we humble ourselves before him, when we get low, that should happen when we read the word of God. It should correct us. God, forgive us for our judgmental spirits on the word of God, for our critical spirits, for our unwilling to repent spirits. I love it. When they fall terrified, you see what the text says? Jesus came up and touched them and said, have no fear. You see, because of the touch of Jesus, because of the cross of Jesus, because of the mediating, reconciling work of Jesus, we now can enter into our Father's presence and call him Abba, Father, as his beloved sons and daughters. It's such a wonderful reminder here. They look up and Moses and Elijah are gone. Then he goes on in verses 7 to 9. And it's just a little reminder of his divine authority. He tells them, don't tell anybody about this vision. Now, if that happened today, people get billboards, they run crusades, right? They, they go on the internet, they tell everybody, even when they have these false visions, they're just trumping. And here Jesus says, and I'm thinking, why? This would help promote the program, Jesus. Kind of get with it. I can see Peter saying, like, we can map out a whole strategy of marketing and everything. And Jesus, no, don't tell anybody because I have my predetermined plan of how this is going to roll out. 
And they come under his divine authority. It seems they did. I don't know if they told even the other apostles. We don't know. But he said to them, don't tell anybody until I'm raised from the dead. And they need to come under his divine authority. They don't even need a reason why. Parents with little children, as you, they grow, you teach them the moral reason why. But the first thing before they get the moral reason why is they need to come under your authority because you're mom or dad. That's why. And we're under authority. Listen to him. Listen to him, the father said of his son. And then verses 10 to 13, they just ask a natural question. I don't have time to unpack it, but this thing about Elijah, what it indicates is these three men suddenly had an increased understanding that this was the Messiah. I think that's obvious, right? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And so then they're thinking through, but, but wait a minute. When the Messiah comes, the last few verses of the Old Testament and Malachi said, before the Messiah comes, Elijah must come. And so they're asking him about that. What have we got wrong? Because you're here and you're the Messiah, but Elijah, and he just explains to him, Elijah has actually come. And it's John the Baptist, says that right at the end of our passage. It's not that John the Baptist was a reincarnation of Elijah. John the Baptist came in the ministry and power of Elijah, preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, that's the transfiguration Let's go back to Peter now. I want to read a little more of what Peter says. I think this is crucial in the day and age we're living. In the state of the church in Canada, we live in a consumeristic society and it's infiltrated the church. We treat churches like a buffet line. We pick and choose when we don't like something, we jump to another church. Now, I know there's reasons to leave church. I've done that. Right? We were encouraged even in this pandemic by the president of GCC to understand people move churches. But there's an epidemic of they don't like anything. And I think we do the same thing with the word of God. And Peter, I think, wants to emphasize something for us, the Holy Spirit through Peter. Verse 16 of 2 Peter 1. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says this, listen, listen, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter, James, and John were eyewitnesses of the glory of Jesus, unlike anybody else on the planet. He says this, for when he received, Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory now, this is how we know he's speaking of the transfiguration because he quotes God, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And Peter says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with them on the holy mountain. Peter's saying, if you want to compare personal experiences, I have the one that will top you all. You can't get more than I had. If you're looking for something like that and then you'll respond and then you'll obey and then you'll listen, I'm telling you, you can't trump Peter's. That's what he's saying. But look at what he says back to the verse we started with. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven and we have, listen, the prophetic word. He doesn't mean the experience. The prophetic word means the Old Testament and the New Testament was being written. He says, we have Holy Scripture. We have the prophetic word, listen, more fully confirmed. The word of God is more reliable 
more important than any experience you could ever have. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which, listen, you will do well to pay attention. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What, what, what? Listen to him. Peter's learned. We have the prophetic word to do what you would do well to pay attention to scripture. It's more sure than anybody's experience. It's more certain. It's more fully confirmed. It's like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, the morning star rises in your heart. He goes on that no prophecy of Scripture comes from anyone's interpretation. Scripture was written by men, but no prophecy was ever prophesied by the will of man, but men spoke from God when they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Listen, you are never going to hear the voice of God from heaven, probably. And you're never going to see with your own eyes this side of heaven the glory of Jesus or the power of God like they did. But we have a more sure and certain word. All we need, all we need for life and godliness. When the world turns upside down on you, when the trial comes this week that makes no sense and seems wrong in every way, when this world persecutes us, and I'm telling you, it's coming. It's coming. Soon, we believe in our church, soon. We're starting a process to train up 30 or 40 men to run pastor home churches. We believe we'll be declared a hate organization and shut down. They'll take away everything, not just of churches, but us as Christians. It doesn't matter. Listen, none of us want that, but we have all we need for life and godliness in this book. So we need to listen to him. We need to listen.